1: That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.
2: Hey, this is Sean Illing, occasional host of Vox Conversations. But I'm here today to introduce an episode of the show hosted by my friend and colleague Seagal Samuel, with whom I co-hosted The Way Through podcast last fall. For today's show, Seagal talks with the author of Wintering, Catherine May, about all the lessons we can learn during life's darkest seasons. It's a conversation about our long, collective pandemic winter, about how times of retreat can allow for personal and political transformation, and about how we might carry some new wisdom with us as we emerge into spring. Here is Seagal.
0: to confess a secret to you. I hate the pandemic as much as the next person. Like, I really, really hate it. But also, there's a part of me that actually likes some aspect of it. Even though it has caused me a ton of misery and anxiety, I've also felt like it's forced me to do an unusual amount of reflecting. And that's opened up some space for me to learn hard truths about who I am and who I want to be. Going through this kind of experience is what the British writer Catherine May calls wintering. In her new book of that title, she explores the idea of winter, not just literally as a season of cold weather, but also metaphorically as a personal season that we all go through at various points in life. When you're wintering, you're in a mode that's slow and reflective and detached from everyone else. It can be brutally hard and lonely, but it's also where transformation happens. Wisdom resides in those who have wintered, she writes. In our relentlessly busy contemporary world, we are forever trying to defer the onset of winter. We don't ever dare to feel its full bite, but an occasional sharp wintering would do us good. For a lot of us, this entire past year has felt like one giant winter. Now, some of us, and I want to say it's really the privileged among us, are emerging out of our pandemic hibernation into spring. Before we can leave the winter, though, I think it's worth asking, are there skills for wintering well that we can carry forward with us to help us the next time life inevitably forces us into another one of these fallow periods? And what transformation, what wisdom do we want to glean from our pandemic year? Catherine May is here to help us think through these questions. Catherine, thank you so much for being here. Hi, thank you for having me. Really, a pleasure to get to talk to you because I so enjoyed your book, Wintering. It's written in a really beautiful, lyrical, and also intimate and vulnerable mode. So I'm excited to get to chat with you today. And before we launch into wintering, I just want to say I'm currently in Montreal where we are very much still in deep winter mode. So I'm looking out my window and there's still a lot of feet of snow piled up outside. Tell me where exactly are you and what's the weather for you these days, both
3: outside your window and also your own internal weather? (laughs) So I'm in Whitstable, which is in the very far southeast of England. I live about five minutes walk from the sea. Currently in the external winter, we are just at the stage of like early spring where some days it's beautiful and warm and you think summer's come and then the next day it'll be freezing cold and there's ice on the, you know, on the beach in the morning. So it's like that kind of weird early spring weather that doesn't know what it is yet. And you start to think, ah, oh, like everything's loosening up. It's all going to become easy again. And then the world reminds you that actually it's still pretty hard. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of internal winter, I feel like the pandemic has suited me in many ways. That sounds like a really terrible thing to say, I think. But, you know, I've lost, you know, people and some sad stuff has happened and it's been hard in lots of ways. But I think I've also found the environment that it creates, the kind of slowing of the pace has actually made some of my life easier. And that's been really, really interesting. I think it's been a period of great frustration for me, but also of great reflection about the number of things that I was saying yes to that were actually leaving me kind of very tired and drained. First of all, I want to say I really resonate with your description of your
0: pandemic experience. I have also found it very painful, but also weirdly
3: restorative on other levels. Mm. I I don't think we're the only ones either. I mean, obviously, you know, like we've got to talk about this really sensitively because it's been so hard for so many people in so many different ways. But I do think that for lots of people, the pause has taught them a, a huge amount. I'm hearing people who are starting new businesses, moving house, moving city, reforming their working life. You know, there's there's some stuff that we've learned here about the ways in which life was not that good before that we maybe, you know, don't want to return to.
0: It's interesting to me because the book you've written, Wintering,
3: you actually started writing this before the pandemic struck, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the whole thing was written before the pandemic struck. And in fact, in the UK, it actually came out about three weeks before we went into the first lockdown. So I had about three weeks when people were talking about it, not as a book about the pandemic. And ever since then, it's been like, it's been seen as a pandemic book. What interests me about it, I think, is that the experience of wintering is universal. But this year, we've all wintered at the same time, not necessarily Mm -hmm. together, interestingly, but simultaneously. And That means that we've all been looking for some language to describe it. And we've also been looking for, you know, a a route through it, I think. And so that's why it feels like my book was written for it. It really, really wasn't.
0: It really does. It feels like it was written for our pandemic year, which feels like one whole winter. But Mm. let's first step back and take your idea of wintering on its own as this universal experience. And later we'll kind of see how it relates to pandemic life. But I wonder if you could first just describe to me, what do you see as the basic features of wintering?
3: I think there's a few things that come together in a wintering. One is this sense of being the other side of the glass, if you like. I mean, I talk about it as falling through the cracks and landing somewhere else. And that's a very particular place because it's it's this sense of looking out at the world carrying on without you and feeling like there's a barrier in the way of you participating, like you can't get back up again. You can't re-engage with this world. There's this loss that you experience that's, you know, really all-pervading. One of the really vital things to say about a wintering is that it's always a really horrible time. It's unpleasant. It is full of really negative feelings and unhappiness and that's part of what makes us separate from the world but i think also a wintering is a period of transition you might not know its transition when you start it you you know it might not feel like you're welcoming a change in any way but it is a space almost like a space in life that's bringing us change and that's inviting us into a new way of living. Mm -hmm. And to be absolutely clear, like that isn't always a wanted change. You know, this isn't the kind of legion of self-help books that tell you that, you know, you've got to embrace this and it's going to be fantastic and you'll come out better. (laughs) Sometimes winterings lead us into changes that we really don't want. You know, they lead us into ill health, for example, or they involve the death of somebody that we love a lot or the end of a relationship. And it's not those things are positive in and of themselves. But if we can embrace that change that comes, we can live a happier life again. They're not necessarily permanent. I think that's what I'd say, the the features of a wintering. Words you
0: use to describe this in your book, you sort of talk about the active acceptance of sadness and also acceptance of deeply unfashionable things, things that are actually pretty countercultural in our contemporary Western world. Because it's about being sort of in this slow, reflective, non-productive, non-commodifiable mode. Um, yeah. But as you said, that's where the transformation can occur.
3: It is, and it's it's also the place where so many people live for so much of the time, and we don't really like to look at that place, that that area of life, if you like. I think that sense of busyness and productivity has become how we judge our self-esteem really in the modern world. It's it's how we're taught to go out there and be important and being busy proves to us that we're important. You know, it's very hard to say to somebody when they ask how you are, oh, I'm not doing much actually. Mm-hmm. No, I'm not. <laughs> And I, I thought about that really hard myself when in the early years of, of after my son was born, And I found that I couldn't get back into working. I was kind of stuck in a double bind because I was a freelancer and a lot of my work involved being somewhere in person. I used to work with schools to kind of encourage them to create more creative curricula. And in those early years when my son was born, I couldn't afford childcare because I wasn't working and I couldn't work because I didn't have childcare. And there were a couple of years when my earnings dipped so low that I don't think I even could bear to look at my tax return when I filled it in, you know? Like, I was ashamed of how useless I was, as I perceived it at the time, to the world. There was this real sense of shame about it. And, you know, a few years on, like, I, you know, I feel like I'm interacting with the world again. But when I look back, I think I wasn't useless at all. I was doing some really important work, which was looking after a small baby. But it felt so shameful to me to know that I wasn't making an economic contribution, that I wasn't doing anything in the outside world that made people see me. And, and you know, so I didn't feel witnessed. Mm-hmm. And I think there's loads of points in life that take us there. And, you know, there's an important moment in the book when I talk about how you are not your economic worth. <laughs> you are not how busy you are. It's okay sometimes to be carried. In fact, there's a value to being carried because that gives people the chance to help. And that's one of the things that people love to do. They love to help. And sometimes we have to let them. I
0: find that really resonant. I totally am with you in this feeling of constantly having to perform busyness uh, as a marker of value. You know, I really saw myself and some of my own personal winters in what you wrote in your book, you know, you mentioned that wintering can be a really difficult period, but it's also where transformation occurs. And I remember a couple of years ago, I actually went through a very difficult, very painful breakup where I ended a relationship that wasn't working well for me. And I think the natural impulse a lot of us have when we're in the midst of intense pain like that and aloneness is to quickly try to patch it over and, you know, seek out a new person, seek out something to really cover that up. Um, Mm. And instead, some instinct in me told me not to do that. I didn't at the time have the language of wintering for it, but that's basically what I did. And I decided to not date anyone, not do any of that for a year, and instead really just focus on being very reflective, analyzing some of my own patterns and what kind of people I tend to be drawn to and how can I instead gravitate towards people and things that will make me actually feel happy. And as a result, when I kind of reemerged and went out and started dating again, I ended up finding a partner who totally didn't fit that previous mold of what I had looked for in the past, uh, <laughs> totally different mold, who's wonderful. And, and now I'm in a relationship that makes me incredibly happy. And I, I think mm. that's, you know, what enabled me to go and find that right kind of person is precisely that it's I the took pause. the time to
3: winter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's so interesting. And, I, you know, like that speaks to the fact that if we can't be with the saddest parts of our life those really difficult bits if we can't bear to slow down and listen to them we don't learn a thing from them and we just go back and make the same mistakes again and and actually i've got a couple of friends who (laughs) broke up with their partners just before lockdown and then had this kind of year of enforced separation which is you know must have been really really hard but also talking to them over the year I can hear them, like, almost revving their engines in that time. You know, they've had mm-hmm. some time to think about what they really want next rather than rushing out and kind of panic buying a new partner. <laughs> and <laughs> Panic buying. Because <laughs> we, we've all done it. Um, oh, yeah. And actually, you know, we're beginning to emerge now. Hopefully we have this kind of roadmap in this country that we've got out of lockdown and i just i feel like they're going out really positively into the world really knowing who they are and having a sense of the life after these you know massive life defining times and it's been painful but i think they might look back over this period and think wow a lot happened in those those 12 months you described wintering in your book also
0: as a crucible right it's the times that really form us and that's not necessarily pleasant to go through but uh, but can be transformative and i also really liked how in your book you you talk about winter in children's books as a sort of trope and and the falling of snow the onset of winter as this trigger for transformation i really started thinking about books like the Chronicles of Narnia with the, the snow, his dark materials, the Philip Pullman books like The Golden Compass, where you have the northern lights uh, up in the cold weather as this sort of representation of a place where the veil is kind of thin between the mundane world and the sublime world. And that's like a threshold where transformation can happen.
3: Yeah. I mean, I'm always drawn to reading children's books when I'm in crisis. Like on one hand, I think they're just immensely comforting and familiar. But when I started to think about them when I was writing this book, I started to realise that there's this real pattern you can see in them of two things. One is the kind of transformation of the cold and snow, which kind of disables the adults somehow, puts them out of action or out of reach, or kills them, as is quite often the case with children's books, let's face it, and lets the children take control. It forces them to find their strength and their power and to find a way through. And the other thing is, yeah, this sense of the veil being thin between the rational everyday world that we know and another world, a different kind of a world where the forces of good and evil are much more present and immediate. And I link that to the kind of Celtic idea of thin places, the idea that there are spots in the world where the the veil between this world and the other world are thin. And that's about liminality. And I think, you know, wintering is the kind of ultimate liminal period in our life. It's these times in between two lives, two phases, two selves that we know really well. And there are some very kind of, shadowy aspects to that, you know, that our minds operate in a very different way at those times. And children's books somehow speak to all of those things. And I think that might say more about children's writers than the books themselves. You know, I think they're often people who are really intimate with winter. Mm -hmm. It feels like they're there to teach us something about how to survive the times that we'll all go through. As
0: I was thinking about wintering and and reading your book, I was sort of thinking about people, you know, grown-ups in history who've done a lot of extreme wintering, we could say, in their own lives, especially a lot of sort of contemplatives and mystics who have done a lot of self-imposed isolation and and things like that. Were you thinking of any of these sort of extreme winterers, if I could put it that way, while you were
3: writing? (laughs) Yeah, I was actually I did quite a lot of research into mystics and the kind of practice of taking yourself away the tradition in Buddhism of kind of going into full retreat, you know, maybe in a cave, maybe up a mountain. Yeah, I did. And actually, they didn't make it into the the final book because I was trying to write about solitude and I couldn't quite find a way to, to fit it in in the end. But I thought about it a great deal because, you know, what you witness in those people is a very deliberate strategy, I suppose you'd say, of choosing isolation in order to invite revelation. And I don't think that's far off, actually. I mean, I know that we don't volunteer for our isolated phases, but they often bring something to us. And that's about taking an imaginative leap sometimes. You know, this isn't a series of logical steps that we follow through and go, oh, I've figured this out. Okay, well, I've done this and I've done that. So the next thing is, oh, okay, I'll do that. (laughs) It's actually... Often feels like a very sudden dropping of the penny about where we go next. It can feel really like, I don't know, like a visitation almost.
2: Mm-hmm. And it
3: can feel quite mystical, I think. I think those times when we're alone, are, are, whatever your belief system is, are really spiritual times, in fact. And so, yeah, I was, I am, I remain very interested in those people who choose that, actually. And I think I can see. Myself, you know, going into into retreat one day when I get the chance to, I think I'd really like that, actually.
0: <laughs> My favourite example of this is a close to home for you, geographically, actually, Julian of Norwich. Um, uh, yes, yeah. Right? She's so interesting to me. She was this Christian mystic who lived during the bubonic plague, so an mm. earlier pandemic, and at, at age 30, purposely had herself sealed up into a cell for the rest of her life so that she could have visions of
3: God and then write about them. I fully sympathize with that, frankly. Yeah, <laughs> what, <know>. a, what <laughs> do a writer's retreat. Still <laughs> me <in> my cell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And actually, for my last book, Electricity of Every Living Thing, I wrote about St. Moena who is a Celtic saint in Cornwall who was supposed to have been a Welsh princess who kind of renounced all of her worldly goods and went to live on a cliff face in Cornwall and existed only to serve the kind of the very small village there. And I'm really interested in those figures and I'm really interested in the value of solitude and how little solitude we have. You know, we are so rarely alone because of our phones. And I it's very, very hard to carve out even a couple of hours to ourselves when we are genuinely there with our thoughts. And I think that's why I walk when I can. That's been mm-hmm. difficult this year too. But I feel like I can, you know, choose to put my phone in my pocket then. And if I go to a wild enough space, it won't work anyway. And just be, just exist. And it's really funny because when I talk about going for long walks alone, the first question people always ask is, aren't you terribly afraid? And like, actually no, I'm not, I'm not. I feel much more afraid in cities. But also people say, well, of course, you must be listening to music while you're doing that. Or do you listen to audio books? And it's like, no, no. That defeats the purpose. Yeah. But I, I think we can't imagine complete solitude mm-hmm. anymore. We can't imagine no external input. And we we need that. Actually, I've just been reading a very interesting book. It's called Wolf Milk by Martin Shaw. And he leads wilderness retreats in Dartmoor, which is like a very big wilderness in the southwest of England. And he takes people for five days of living outside with only a tarpaulin and water. They have no food for five days. They don't see another soul for five days. And then he kind of takes them back and reintegrates them into society. And I'm, I'm not sure if I could do something that extreme, but the way he accounts for it is like you are actually inviting yourself to go a little bit mad for a while Mm -hmm. and that that would once have been normal. We'd have been more familiar with the inside of our own head, essentially, and the wildness of that and the the visionary potential of that. I think that... In our modern culture,
0: we are so scared of these wintering moments. We're so scared of, Mm -hmm. you know, just actually seeing ourselves and hearing our own thoughts. There was actually, a couple of years ago, a scientific study done where researchers gave people the option between either sitting alone with their own thoughts for 15 minutes or getting electric shocks. And a lot of people chose the electric shocks. Really? Yeah. This is how My this is goodness. how afraid we are to be alone. And throughout history, there is this rich tradition of the value of seclusion. And we see that you know we see it in Buddhism, we see it in early Christian mystics, uh, we see it in the Sufi tradition. Even a really wild example in the Roman Empire: Simeon the Stylite lived of on course, top, yeah. on yep, top yep. of a 60-foot <laughs> pillar for 37 years, yeah. right?
3: To us now, that's really unthinkable. No, I mean, obviously, I mean, we saw those as extreme at the time, but we also saw them as valid and valuable and yes. admirable. And I don't think we would see it in the same way now. We would see it as a simple act of, of madness, particularly in the West. And I think, You know, we have to find a way to reintegrate time inside our heads. There's so much there and we are afraid of looking at ourselves in silence. And I think for me, like a lot of the pain that people are in in the modern world isn't because they're sad, it's because they're refusing to feel their sadness. Like they're living whole lives flinching away from sadness. They think that if they examine their sadness, it will destroy them. But actually what's gradually unwinding us is this endless flinch that we make whenever sadness gets anywhere close to us. You know, that's a skill that we need to relearn quite urgently. Okay, let's take a quick break. But when
0: we're back, I'm really intrigued by this idea of the value of fallow periods and how we humans handled them in centuries past. How are we maybe better at embracing our winters? And what can other time periods and traditions teach us when it comes to living through the darkest days? We'll find out after the break.
2: Support for The Gray Area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what exactly? That's for audiences to decide, but how would they do it? They've used Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth. Whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point of sale system. Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com/box. You can go to shopify.com/box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. shopify.com/box
1: Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor,
0: State Farm is there. You were just talking about the value of these sort of more fallow periods and how perhaps, you know, some centuries ago that was seen as more valuable and, and we're kind of missing that idea now. And it, your book made me think a lot about the the Jewish idea of valuable fallow periods, because I was raised in the Orthodox Jewish world, and you know the Sabbath, right, is is this time where once every seven days we purposely have this fallow period of, of rest and not doing work, and then every seven years there's a macro version of that called the Shemitah year, which is talked about in the Bible, and it's this time when you're supposed to. Not plow your field, anything that just grows wild in your feed, it's to be given to the poor, it's a year of debt forgiveness. So this is a time that is not materially productive, but it is spiritually generative, you could say. That really like, struck me as being very much an example of
3: wintering that was embraced in a, in a bygone era. That sounds wonderful. I I mean, the Sabbath really interests me, actually, because even in my childhood, like in the UK, shops weren't open on Sunday. They were open on Saturday, but shops weren't open on a Sunday. And, you know, we had three TV channels or four TV channels (laughs) for most of my childhood. And there was nothing to do on a Sunday. You'd literally spent the time quietly with your family. And although... You know, as teenagers, we resented that and got frustrated and we pushed against it, of course. I also really miss that rhythm to the week, that one day every week was just quiet. It was just very restorative. You know, we always ate lunch together on a Sunday. We sometimes got books out after lunch or photographs, you know, or had a chat about whatever. Like, we didn't do anything of any note And it was lovely. It was really beautiful. And I think we could all do with finding a Sabbath again, actually.
0: One thing that kind of made me laugh in your book was, you know, you sort of talk about how when a crisis happens to us, it almost gives us like, quote unquote, legitimate reason to take off work or, you know, take a rest, a pause. Uh, It gives a sort of permission. (laughs) And your book starts with both Mm. you and your husband experiencing uh, a medical crisis that kind of afforded this sort of permission, you could say, uh, to to kind of take off time from work. Can you tell me a bit about those experiences and, and that feeling of legitimacy that it
3: lent to you? Yeah. So as the book opened, my husband had a very sudden appendicitis, like a really nasty one that suddenly went from zero to medical emergency on the kind of eve of my 40th birthday. And by that point, I'd already handed my notice in at my job. I worked uh, leading a creative writing degree, as so many writers do. And I'd realised that I was just really struggling with the level of stress, with how much of my life it was taking over. I knew it was time to move on. So I'd handed in my notice and then I got sick. So while I was sitting by my husband's hospital bed as he was recovering, I began to get abdominal pain. And first of all, I thought, oh, this is some weird sympathetic thing <laughs> going on. Mm-hmm. But then it got worse and worse until I found myself like having to call my doctor from work one day to say, like, I, I'm in so much pain, I, I don't know what to do, I can't move. And he signed me off work, like, like more or less for the rest of the time that I was employed. I had loads of feelings about that. And I think a lot of the book is walking through the variety of feelings that happen. I mean, I was really fearful. He told me to, you know, prepare myself that it could be a cancer diagnosis. And as it turned out, it wasn't, but it it is a kind of life-changing condition. I've got to control how I eat. I have to make sure I don't get too tired or stressed or, you know, like everything is, is slightly restricted. But it also was like a sense of relief, actually, that I could legitimately say I am unable to take part right now, I already knew that. Like, it had already happened. I was already struggling to take part in the everyday world. I was already too stressed. I was already overwhelmed and overwrought and exhausted. But there's no root in our society for us to just say that, is there? Like, we're not allowed to call into work and say do you know what, I can't handle this anymore. We need someone to write us a certificate that proves that we are able to handle it anymore. And actually, I would go further and say, I needed to push my body to breaking point before I could take the rest that I needed all along. Mm-hmm. And that's when you think about it, is massively problematic. Because had I been able to manage the level of stress I was under earlier... I might still have stayed in that job. You know, I might have been much more productive, there you go, let's go back to that word, and useful mm-hmm. to the world, than I was by the time that I had totally driven myself into the ground. I often speak about this and people say, well, there's nothing we can do about that. And I think, yeah, there's nothing we could do about that today or tomorrow But it is time for us to think about how this changes. It's getting more and more urgent. Like this year has shown us that the world can carry on when everything has to stop. Right. Like there's always going to be a time when individuals need to stop. And I think we can find a way to absorb that better.
0: I have found it sort of interesting how the pandemic has, again, you know, for the very privileged among us, it has to some extent legitimized, not functioning at full capacity. There's more understanding at least in certain workplaces, for the fact that you're stuck at home, your kids are at home, their school is shut down, you know, or you have to care for an elderly parent or whatever it is. There are a lot of extenuating circumstances right now. And I think there's more sort of societal legitimizing of that. Um, mm. Have you have you found that to be liberating in the past year?
3: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's externalized a lot of the stuff that we used to keep hidden, actually parenting is a really good example of that. You know, I think that many of us have felt like we have to pretend that our kids are not a concern when we're in the workplace. You know, we have to sort of suck it up and make it work at home rather than saying, I can't do that because I've got to pick up from school or I can't do that because my kid will want to spend some time with me every evening and I don't want to skip that actually. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it's almost like we've manifested some of the things that we were really trying very hard to hide before. And I I hope that we'll be able to carry on doing that. But what I think is interesting, and it's really interesting you brought up privilege there, because, yeah, obviously there are so many different ways in which wealth in particular has made it much easier to survive the pandemic, you know, and even small amounts of wealth, you know, just having a back garden, for example, you know, makes so much difference. But this is a place where the less privileged people can really teach us such a lot because they've been living with this stuff for ages. You know, the people who are disabled, who have chronic illness, who have caring responsibilities, who've lived with restricted means for a long time, who've been much more invisible than you and I have been, who've been voiceless in this society they're leading the way with this. They can teach us how to deal with this because they've had to go on with life and know how valuable their life is without feeling important for a very, very long time. And actually with, you know, the world often making them feel actively unimportant and, you know, telling them they're a drain. And those people, they're leading us right now because they know how to do this. They know how to still value themselves and their existence and still carry on in these moments of total invisibility when everything's vanished.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm curious what you think are the things that help one to do that. The one thing that that occurs to me that you, you sort of touch on a few points in your book is the role of rituals mm. in helping us get through times like that. While you were in your own personal winter, this was pre-pandemic, you write in the book about how you gravitated toward some rituals like uh, marking the winter solstice at Stonehenge, for example. Rituals that kind of help mark the passage of time, um, which I think that has been really important for a lot of us during the pandemic when, you know, time has just felt like this flat circle. Yeah, Um, yeah. (laughs) You know, I'm, I'm wondering if there are other rituals you've come up with to help you navigate the pandemic or other rituals you've seen other people that you think have a lot of wisdom around these things, uh, uh, things they've come up with.
3: Yeah, I think for me, ritual has always been something that I fought shy of traditionally in my life. Like I've I've always felt a bit awkward around it. I wasn't brought up with any ritual at all, really. And it's always felt like it's something that other people do and not me. But when I was at my lowest ebb, I found myself seeking out like communal experiences for a start, which obviously has not Helped this year, but also experiences that marked something. So, I also went to the Swedish church in London to see the Santa Lucia service, which happens kind of early mid December and it's St Lucy's Day. So, it's the idea of St Lucy carrying light into the world. So, a woman walks down the aisle with a crown of candles in her hair and it's supposed to be kind of bringing light back into the world at the darkest point of the year. And I found myself incredibly moved by that. You know, I'm not a Christian. I wasn't brought up a Christian. I did go to Christian schools. so I'm like really familiar with a lot of it, but it's never really meant a great deal to me. Mm -hmm. But what meant a lot to me was this idea that in midwinter, it's acknowledged that we might need that experience, that celebration of light, that sense that everybody is finding the darkness hard like it doesn't take a lot really it's not it's not much but it's everything when you're in a particularly dark phase and that's definitely what going to Stonehenge did for me as well at midwinter like this sense of everyone coming together to worship light coming back you know not just to welcome it not just to say oh here it is but to say wow, this is this is everything right now. This is everything we've got, this light returning. And yeah, that's led me to be really conscious of marking the passage of the year in very simple ways, you know, like just noticing the equinoxes and solstices, uh, the days when we have equal light and darkness across the day and those most extreme points of the longest day and the shortest day, But I also ended up talking to Philip Cargom, who at the time was our chief druid in the UK. And he told me about the wheel of the year where there's those four points, the two equinoxes, the two solstices, but also a point in between each of them so that you have these eight festivals across the year. And each one's about six weeks apart. So you always have something to look forward to, just a a moment in the year when you're going to notice what's growing at the moment, what's happening with the light, how cold is it, how does this part of the year feel? And the way he told it to me, which I think has so much truth in it, was when you're struggling, just knowing that time has moved on from the last time that you got together to celebrate can really help you to just know that progress is being made, that we're still going forward, that not everything has just frozen solid and is stuck. And it's so small, you know, it's not big. It's not about asking some massive benevolent higher power to sort things out for you. (laughs) It's actually just about saying, here we are, this is what's happening. But I trust the world to carry on turning, even when I'm in crisis. I love
0: that in that tradition, they have every six weeks, there is a marking of time, right? There is that ritual. It's every six weeks. I think that would be really
3: useful for probably a lot of us during this kind of time. Honestly, I, having having adopted it, it's lovely. It really is. Actually, deliberately engaging with that very rhythmic pattern of celebration across the year is a very different experience. And you realize how there are these wastelands in some of the parts of the year when there's nothing happening. And this just makes something happening. And I think that really speaks to the way that people have addressed this pandemic as well. You know, like people who are having, I don't know, Japanese night once a month now or or games night on a Mm -hmm. Tuesday or movie night on a Friday. In a way, that's a very similar instinct. It's a way of shaping time or marking time that just brings some deliberate pleasure in where there isn't any pleasure that's instantly available.
0: Are there other techniques that you used Maybe when you were, while you were writing this book pre-pandemic, that you have found have served you well during the pandemic, or you know, have you found yourself discovering and developing new rituals or new techniques during this particular pandemic period?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think the big one for me is just learning to get outside every single day, mm-hmm. like without fail. While I was writing Wintering, uh, you know, and in the depths of that crisis, when I was really afraid. I used to step outside every morning and uh, and just breathe the air, just notice how it smelled. And you notice so much change happening just from the way the air smells in the morning. And I also used to step outside at night and say good evening to the moon, which might seem quite eccentric to some people. But actually, like the moon is a very beautiful thing that you can access for free from your bedroom window if you need to. And it changes every single day. Once again, like it goes through the phases that we know are there, but maybe we don't always stop to notice. And once you engage with that that shifting across the month, every single month, the fact that there's a new thing to observe every day, the fact that you can just drop into the quality of your attention For a few moments, it's so quick. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't need any equipment. You don't need any liturgy. You don't need somebody telling you how to do it. You know, -hmm. It's just a small moment. And I used to just go out and greet the moon every evening and feel like she was listening to me. Not in a real sense, you know. It's not therapy, unfortunately, but it's a lot cheaper than that. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, so I would say my biggest advice to people is like if you can just notice the natural world, it gives you so much every single time. It's funny you, you're saying this because just yesterday
0: I went for a long walk and I noticed, you know, again, small things, not giant lightning bolts symbols from the sky, but just I noticed that even though here in Montreal, there's still a ton of snow on the ground, it's still very much winter, the trees already have buds on them. They're already preparing their tiny buds. And I was thinking like, oh, yeah. you know, <laughs> they're already preparing for spring. It's, and I took off my mask for a moment and just smelled the air. <laughs> Yesterday was the first day I could actually smell it in the air. Like, mm, mm. I smell the spring coming. Here it comes. Yeah, here it comes. And so, you know, I, I want to just drill down for a minute into your skill set for wintering, if I could call it that, because it seems like there are some concrete things that you have found very helpful in these periods, like taking walks in the fresh air is one, you know, sleeping well, eating well, slowing down. And there are also some more philosophical mindset things. You talk in the book about accepting the idea of impermanence. Mm. And these strike me as as not unrelated, right? Like when you're talking about going out and, and looking at the moon or smelling the air and noticing like, mm, is an, a new season kind of on the cusp of coming, right? That also is a way of subtly reminding your brain, mm, maybe I'm in a wintering right now, but this is impermanent, right? There is something that is going to come around the corner and, yeah. and maybe it's going to be Better or maybe it's going to be worse. (laughs) Or maybe maybe it's going to be worse. I don't. You know, I was trying
3: to be positive there for a minute. (laughs) A little storm cloud is coming again. Sorry.
0: (laughs) Yes. Yes. Well, okay, but exactly that, right? Exactly because a lot of us feel like, oh, there are vaccines now. You know, maybe we're coming out of the pandemic winter into spring, but inevitably there will again be these. Winter Mm. periods, right? Mm. Whether it's a huge global pandemic, or it's something in our own personal lives, there are going to be these periods of winter again, inevitably. So are there other like really concrete skills you want to recommend that people take with them and, and like really practice and internalize?
3: Mm, that's really interesting, because in lots of ways, I don't think there are concrete skills in this you know like i I wish there were I wish there were like you know here's a technique you can do that, that will save you the next time this happens for me it's it's more global than that, you know it's more holistic than that it's it's about adopting a lifestyle in which you are conscious and that you deliberately engage with the reality of life and stop escaping it. And, you know, the way I got to this was meditating. Like I learned to meditate about, I don't know, well, 15 years ago now, maybe a little bit more. And, you know, I learned it for the reason that loads of people learn it, which was that I wanted to help with stress and anxiety and I thought it was going to be like a simple fix. And quite soon on, I realised that, I mean, A, it made me feel an awful lot better, but also B it wasn't going to be a quick fix. It was going to be a complete change of mindset that was revolutionary, actually. And I think that's what's got me here, is a long-term engagement with, you know, that kind of unflinching look at yourself and what's happening and how you are encountering the world around you. And I know it's not for everyone, and I know that every time... I mention meditation, people say, well, I couldn't do that because I can't sit down for long enough. It's like, my Lord, does anyone know how hard I find it to sit still? <laughs> like, I always feel like that's like a veiled insight. Like, you know, like me with my active mind couldn't possibly meditate, but I'm sure you're dozy enough to manage it. you know. <laughs> and actually, the truth is that in order to develop a meditation practice, you have to choose to commit to it. Mm -hmm. That's the only difference between me and the people who say they can't, because I have a very, very scattered brain, you know, (laughs) in my worst moments. And I found it really hard to learn and I found it physically uncomfortable sometimes. But maybe at that point in my life, I was desperate enough to try anything and to really give it a go. And it helped, I think, that I went to see a teacher rather than picking up an app that I got bored of after a couple of moments, it was always going to be a much more complex relationship and I invited that in. But sorry, so the reason I'm saying all of this (laughs) is that if you're looking for a toolkit, then actually having a way to engage in the the deep, slow work of self-reflection and self-examination and taking that through the good times as well as the bad times, you know, not just letting that kick in in moments when you are in need and in crisis and in despair, but also carrying on taking excellent care of yourself when you're feeling fine about the world at the same time.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: That's what ends up being transformative.
0: You know, I have to say the way you you just spoke about it and you talk about it in your book, in, in terms of the unflinching sitting with your own emotion or thoughts, really reminds me a lot of uh, what psychologists call distress tolerance skills. Uh, The basic idea for um, any listeners who aren't familiar with this is when we have a distressing emotion or something like sad or anxiety inducing comes up in life, we have a natural impulse to try to just run away from it, right? Avoid that emotion, distract ourselves, engage in whatever is our usual escape method, whether that's like binging TV or having a drink or whatever it might be. And the basic idea here is actually do the opposite.
3: Ex- yeah, run towards distress,
0: it. <laughs> yeah, run towards it, right? Yeah. Accept, okay, I'm having this like negative emotion, it's sadness, it's anxiety, whatever. I'm going to commit to actually staying with that emotion mm. and then watch the emotion, you know, just noticing like, okay, it's, it's manifesting in clenched muscles or uh, whatever it is. That helps you kind of detach from it a little bit, get a little space from it, if you can even just describe it as, Okay this feeling isn't me it's it's like a cloud floating past in the sky it'll it'll come and it'll go yeah and this this general idea that you know we're actually walking towards our negative emotions or our internal winters and that teaches our brain that you know hey we're actually strong enough to handle this whereas trying to just run away from it teaches our brain this is shameful or i'm not strong yeah. enough to handle this you know you you have this beautiful part in your book where you talk about wintering with your son, your young son, whom you pulled out of school when he was experiencing a lot of uh, bullying and just, like, was really unhappy yeah. um, in, that, in that school. And you, you describe sort of wintering with him and sort of just sitting with him in his sadness and accepting it, you know, yeah. sort of teaching him this lesson of, like, it's okay. Yeah, you're sad. We don't have to, like, try to run away from that. We can just, for a while, sit in that sadness and
3: be sad. Yeah. And I I often think that sadness is safe, actually. We think of sadness as very unsafe. And as someone that suffered from really catastrophic bouts of depression and anxiety in the past, and, you know, I'm always thinking about when that could next hit, Mm -hmm. what I know is that the sadness, the actual sad part of that is just the eye of the storm. Like when you're with your sadness in those times, they're the most comfortable moments of depression and anxiety. They're like, they're the calm. They're the the pure hit of emotion. The really painful parts are all of the crazy stuff you do around it to avoid that sadness. You know, the addictive behaviour, the self-destructive behaviour, the self-harming behaviour, the manic behaviour, the anxious (laughs) behaviour. Like, all of those things are this big storm around avoiding the painful bits and when you actually encounter the painful bits they're okay you know (laughs) you can do something with those they're pure and they're often very beautiful actually I've been training myself for a long time now to be with those places with those sad places to run towards them and to sit with them and to walk with them And to actually appreciate them, in fact, to know that they're always telling me something that I need to know, whether it's something I'm getting wrong or something I regret or feel bad about, you know, because this isn't all about people doing stuff to me. This is about me sometimes not being the best human being in the world. But also, you know, they often... Talk to me about how I could change my life to make my life happier. And it all comes down to self-care, honestly. It comes down to taking care of yourself as if you were someone that you genuinely loved rather than someone that you don't think deserves the same stuff that you'd hope for for your friends and your family. We're
0: going to take another short break. But when we come back, this pandemic has meant a kind of long winter we're all going through. But the hope brought by vaccines and the actual turning of the seasons means that spring is in sight. So how do we know when we're really ready to take those first tentative steps into the light and what lessons and skills can we take with us? That's after the break.
4: Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life.
0: There is i want to say almost a seductiveness to some of these wintering feelings as we're we're kind of entering into a pandemic spring again, at least you know people in in countries that are privileged enough to be getting a lot of vaccine supply and et cetera. I think that some people have a sort of secret sheepish almost resistance to ending their pandemic winter um <laughs> i know I know folks who you know, they want to get vaccinated, but maybe just not quite yet. <laughs> Give me a couple of months, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, they've discovered like, hey, I really like working from home in my sweatpants and I kind of don't want to be made to go back to the office quite yet. Or like, hey, I I gave birth, I have a newborn baby, like they're a few months old and I yeah. I want to get to keep spending time with them and not have to go into work. I'm, I'm curious, you know, have you ever felt that resistance in your life to to ending a period of wintering and what is a healthy response when that feeling comes up like is there a danger of burrowing down too much into our hibernation wintering mode when we should
3: maybe be just bravely facing springtime oh you know i'm feeling it right now i mean i you know <laughs> i can i can feel the end of of lockdown coming and it's bringing up all sorts of mixed emotions. You know, on the one hand, I've not seen my mum for a year because she lives in Spain and, like, we're all missing seeing her. On the other hand, I know that this year has been easier to cope with in many ways than my previous life was. You know, I haven't had to be anywhere. I haven't had to be making compromised decisions. I haven't felt in a rush for a long time. And I don't miss those feelings whatsoever. And you know what? I think I think winterings end themselves when you've made the change that you need to make. And when we're still wanting to dwell in our wintering, that's a sign that we are not there yet, you know, that we have not found the thing that we need to find. I don't mean that in like a kind of grand revelation sense. Mm-hmm. But I mean, there's like more work to do at those points. Because you know, what I'm learning at the moment is that I've got to redraw my boundaries when I go out into the world so that I don't feel like I have to say yes to everything, you know, so that I can start to say, no, I'm really sorry. I would love to do that. It sounds like massive fun, but also my son will be really upset if I'm away for two nights. And I just Mm -hmm. don't think I can do that to him right now. He's too young. It's really hard. I find it really hard to say that to you even now because it feels embarrassing. It feels like I'm, not dynamic enough, you know, <laughs> or not hungry enough. Like, I, I'm tired of people saying, like, if you haven't succeeded yet, you're not hungry enough for it. Like mm. No, actually, we all live with compromises that we are not allowed to say because we have to still pretend somehow like we're 1950s men with a housewife at home making dinner for us, you know, and that we are ultimately free to just do what we need to do in service of our career. And we're not. And actually... We cause ourselves stress and pain sometimes by agreeing to stuff that we can't do. So I would say to those people who are thinking, I don't want this to end yet. Is there a change you can make? Is there a change you can make to let you feel like you can happily go out into the world on your terms again? And, you know, those changes aren't always immediate. Sometimes this is like a five-year plan, you know, that involves three years of study at university or whatever. But... Actually, you're being offered an insight when you feel resistant to this ending, because we shouldn't feel like we don't want this to end, right? That's the truth of it. We shouldn't mm-hmm. feel like the world that we're getting back is less good than being forcibly kept from our lives and our and the people we love. <laughs> there is a major message there for all of us if we're, if we're feeling that resistance.
0: Yeah, like it's normal. is Is that bad? So bad that we don't want to return to normal. That's probably a sign there's
3: something wrong with our normal. Yeah, completely. And those are personal questions, but they're also big societal questions about how the whole thing operates. And it's time to start asking them. Like if we don't use this to open the door to asking massive questions about the way we were living before this, then we've missed a massive opportunity. In terms of those big societal questions, you talk about this
0: this parable um, that many of us know about of the, the ants and the grasshoppers, yes. <laughs> right? And this this fable where, you know, the, the ants are like the stalwart workers who've been steadily preparing for winter and they've been like doing their work and gathering up their food and saving their resources. And the grasshoppers have been like going around singing and frolicking all summer and not preparing for winter. And, you know, they, they get kind of told off for that. And you write about how you really hate the sanctimoniousness of these ants. I I'm team grasshopper yeah <laughs> team grasshopper yes and you know you you sort of like draw out the parallel to our broader sort of society and our politics where people who you know let's say during this pandemic year haven't had the fat savings account the resources to really weather this storm comfortably they get kind of maybe told off or you know in the US we've had this this whole debate about passing this stimulus package and The Biden administration sending direct cash payments to millions of Americans, right? And a lot of people are quite uh, resistant to that because I think there's that like ants versus grasshoppers feeling. And I love that you say in your book, those ant kind of people, (laughs) they always say about the grasshoppers, like, oh, if only the grasshoppers would work harder. And you propose an alternative. You write... If only life were so stable, happy, and predictable as to produce ants instead of grasshoppers year in, year out. The truth is we all have ant years and grasshopper years, years in which we are able to prepare and save, and years where we need a little extra help. And so do you think that this has implications for policies, broader, like, social movements? You know, should we... Learn from this pandemic that actually maybe we we should be more open to something like direct cash payments to individuals or even something like a basic income?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, obviously, like we live in very different countries and mm-hmm. like my country has probably a much more kind of, I don't know, rigorous welfare state system. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I, I still find it very hard to get over the way you guys have to pay for health care. <laughs> like, that's a, that's yep. a daily shock to me whenever I engage with that. But honestly, we cannot keep creating a society that deliberately stratifies people, deliberately lets the most gifted make the most money and deliberately has a wastage rate of people who don't make it. Like our whole school system is set up to do that. I mean, I'm autistic, so I learnt I was autistic in my late 30s. I spent all my life wondering why I didn't cope very well with stuff. And I carry debt that my peers don't carry. I have had like a much more difficult track through life than other people. I've had many more periods of time out of work, unable to do it because my health has collapsed from the exhaustion. And I have it easy. I'm really, I'm well educated. I'm able to go back into work afterwards. But either we say that people like me shouldn't be allowed to survive Or we start to say that actually people like me are a normal part of society and we need to be able to operate differently. And for the people that, you know, don't want people like me to survive, I think they need to start fessing up to that very clearly, like not couching it in terms of, oh, you don't work hard enough. Oh, you know, uh, the whole Antish stuff, the whole Antish package that I think we're all really aware of.
0: Mm -hmm. One... Like silver lining that I kind of see emerging from the pandemic, at least, is that it does seem like we've seen this in surveys in the US, there is increased welcoming and approval for the idea of things like direct cash payments to individuals, things like a basic income. That used to be such a you know fringe idea that was really considered far out of the mainstream and in just a few years it's managed and particularly in the past pandemic year has managed to really enter the mainstream of policy discussions so i find that to be at least an encouraging sign yeah this is the last thing i i want to ask you is there one new uh habit or ritual or or thing you've developed during this past pandemic year that
3: you Definitely want to keep yeah, well, carrying over. I've been growing oyster mushrooms. In my, mm. <laughs> I just, um, they all have little personalities. You know, they all come out in different shapes and sizes. And I just really enjoy looking after them.
0: <laughs> I feel you. I feel you. I i have recently become obsessed
3: with mushrooms myself. So oh. I totally feel you. But also, I made this resolution that I've stuck with. That's like the resolution to end all resolutions which is never to make any decision out of self-loathing ever again. And, you know, it means I don't take on physical activities that will damage my knees and that I won't be enjoying just to be thinner. It means that I don't do social activities that I'm not going to actually get any pleasure from and that are actually going to be quite unpleasant, you know, that are going to be about, you know, competitivity or something rather than bonding with people and it's just it's actually quite life changing if you if you really really stick to it it's like you know a sort of i don't know circuit breaker for all the bad decisions that you might possibly make i love this this is a great kind of key to
0: maybe help us all identify which are the new habits or lifestyles we've developed in the past year that we want to maintain going forward Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. It's really been a pleasure to talk with you. I hope that, you know, as we're sort of emerging from our our periods of wintering, um, I hope that, you know, we'll all kind of be able to take with us some of the skills that you've talked about for wintering well, and also just like really take this moment of liminality, this threshold moment as we're poised on our pandemic spring to just use this opportunity to think about What are the lessons and the wisdoms we've gained in the past year that we want to carry forward into the spring? So thanks for helping us think through that. Thank you.
3: It's been so lovely to talk.
2: This week's episode of Vox Conversations was produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drastovska. Daniel Turek mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Liz Kelly Nelson is our executive producer and editorial director of Vox Podcast. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement. We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we can improve. And if you have ideas for future guest, guest host, or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations@vox.com. And hey, if you like this episode, share it with your friends, rate and review, and come back next week for a brand new episode. Thanks so much for listening.